We have these moments in our lives when God intervenes with his grace. And it creates a new era. It creates an, a new space in time for us personally. And it oftentimes impacts the things around us. It impacts our family. It impacts our friends. It impacts our work. It impacts our church activity. It's these moments when God intervenes with his grace. When God stops with his grace and comes in and usually addresses an issue that we need some sense of clarification or some sense of reconciliation, even some sense of healing. And we need God to intervene because we're at a place where we can't resolve the issue, whatever it is, by ourselves. And God steps in and he walks us through that process and his grace enables us. And then that moment becomes something that defines us going forward both in terms of just the celebration of what God did in that moment, as well as the changes that that moment brings that now creates new guidance for us going forward. And of course, in the middle of a new year, we naturally sort of intuitively and, and culturally look towards what might be the new thing, the new error in our lives. Luke chapter 1 gives us one of the clearest and most astounding moments like that. It was an error-defining moment, not just for the couple, which happens to be a priest named Ananias and his wife Elizabeth, but for all the world. Because it is in this moment that God makes the arrangements out of his grace to have the forerunner, who we know today is John the Baptist, conceived and born to bring in the message that the Messiah has arrived. And of course, in this same context and in this same moment, God makes arrangements for the Messiah, for Jesus, our Savior, also to be conceived and to be born supernaturally. And everything changed. In this instance, it didn't just change Elizabeth's life. It didn't just change Ananias's life. It changed every life on the face of the globe, in every generation, because now the Messiah is coming. And our definition of how salvation is received and how salvation is, is understood and lived out, how forgiveness can be received, is completely redefined to match what God has desired all along throughout history and God has told us and forecasted all along throughout history this is the way now I will relate to my creation through my son but it begins with the same complications any one of us has when life isn't going the way we expect it so let's look at this error defining moment in the context of our new year, the things that we anticipate, things that will happen that we're not aware of yet, but God is aware of, things that we hope will happen that maybe we can accomplish, or maybe like this couple, we find ourselves in a situation where the complications, which is the first part we're going to look at in Luke chapter 1, the complications are of such a nature we don't have the resources, we don't have the ability. If God doesn't intervene, the situation isn't going to be changed. So in Luke chapter 1, we find Zechariah. I said Ananias earlier by accident. Sorry about that. It's one of those, just didn't have enough coffee this morning, I guess. In verse 5, 
It begins to describe this scenario, and it begins to describe how Zechariah is a temple uh, priest. He has responsibility there, but culturally, he is lacking the one thing that everybody defined his holiness by. And you see that in verse 6. In fact, Luke includes this information that we, they are both righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. Luke is amazing because all of Zachariah's friends, all of Elizabeth's con contemporaries, they would automatically assume because of the cultural trend that had religious overtones out of the Jewish perspective, out of the Old Testament, and out of the concept that if your life wasn't blessed, it's your fault. You've sinned, you've done something wrong. And how many of us are just like that? How many of us feel like that? I've got a complication right now in my life I'm dealing with, I'm struggling with, and we assume, and maybe even those closest to us, maybe even some of our family, some of our friends, maybe some of the people we go to church with, assume we've done something wrong. And Luke is perfectly clear, which is what makes this moment so significant. He is perfectly clear. There is nothing wrong with Zechariah spiritually. There is nothing wrong with Elizabeth spiritually. These are, as Luke describes them, righteous people. And not just righteous because of their religious activity, but righteous in their spirituality so that in God's sight, they're considered righteous. They have already fulfilled the requirements. They have been living their life appropriately. They have been following the law. They have been following the Ten Commandments. He is a priest. He's serving in the temple. And in this moment, he's going to serve in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because he's been chosen by a lottery system to go into and to present the incense and to go into the inner part of the sanctuary, which typically under that system only happened once in a lifetime. Spiritually, they're at the pinnacle of their life. Spiritually, things have never been better for this couple. But yet, they can't conceive. They're doing everything right, but yet the one thing they want, the one thing they desire, the one thing that culture is judging them by, the one standard by which culture is determining whether or not they are everything they need to be, cannot be accomplished. They cannot have children. Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them now are beyond any reasonable consummation of this part of their marriage. They are old enough that the entire situation reads and diagnoses only impossibility. Complications that cannot be worked out. Complications that cannot be resolved complications that are impacting them significantly, but yet they lack the resource. They lack literally, in this case, the physical, but even the emotional. There is absolutely nothing they can do. Which honestly is when most of us actually finally turn to God. They should have been on prayer lists way before this, and maybe they were within their local community of believers. But at this point... There is nothing they can do. If God doesn't intervene, their situation remains 
forever unresolved, and yet at no fault of their own. We may face that in so many different ways this year. We may be in the middle of those complications now. We may be dealing with something physically, something medically, something health-wise, just like Elizabeth that says, this, this health can't be restored in this moment. Or maybe even worse, like Elizabeth, this health can never be restored. It's not that you don't have the right doctor. It's not that you haven't gone to the right medical resource. It's not that you're not living properly. It's not that you're not eating properly. It's not that you're not doing the right things. It's not that you're a horrible person and you've sinned against God and you have some curse against you. Everything is right is just not going to be resolved unless God intervenes. But the hope of Scripture, the hope of the message of Jesus throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is that God loves his creation. God cares for his creation. God wants the best for his creation. God desires an intimate and meaningful relationship with his creation. And so God is willing to intervene. Now, I don't understand the full wisdom of God because that's one of the reasons he's God. It's beyond my capacity to completely understand. It doesn't always get resolved this way. But throughout Scripture, throughout history, and throughout most of our personal experiences, we have seen moments when God did intervene and did resolve the complication. And both biblically and historically, this is one of those motion, moments. In verse 11, an angel appears to Zechariah. Zechariah is standing in the temple doing his duties as a priest. He's at the altar of incense. Zechariah sees him in verse 12, Luke chapter 1, verse 12. When Zechariah sees him, he's terrified and overcome with fear. The angel, like many angel incidences in Scripture, speaks to him and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Because your prayer has been heard. What an amazing statement. Do not be afraid because your prayer has been heard. I would challenge you that if you're considering memorizing Scripture in 2024, which I hope you are, that this is a verse that is worth memorizing. So that you can always remember and you can always go back to Luke chapter 1 verse 13 and recognize I don't need to be afraid because my prayer has been heard. In 1 John, the letter of 1 John in our New Testament, we are told that there is a simple process of logic by which if we pray according to God's will, he hears our prayers. And if he simply hears our prayers, our prayers have been answered. Now, you always feel like when you're looking at a passage like this, you need to add in some caveats because every one of us in here, everyone on live stream, all of us can go back to a moment and recognize, I prayed, but it didn't get answered. I prayed for this specific thing and it didn't happen. I memorized verses like Psalms 37 verse 4 that says the Lord wants to meet the desires of my heart. And I prayed earnestly. I prayed fervently the desires of my heart and that prayer didn't get answered. Again, I am not going to attempt in the few minutes I have this morning to grasp and understand and teach the full wisdom of God that we couldn't understand anyway because we're finite and he's infinite because we are limited and he's unlimited. I, well, there's some things we're just not going to understand. 
But what I understand is God doesn't leave us unanswered. We have a new cat. We, um, his name is Mr. Knightley. No, guys, I did not name him. He has the most amazing facial expressions. And one of the most amazing facial expressions he has is the ability to disagree with a correction. I, we, we've had multiple cats throughout the years. Carrie loves cats, and, and I love Carrie, and so we've had cats. I am, it's no secret to our congregation, I am by history and experience primarily a dog guy. Um, but no cat's ever quite had the facial expression like this cat. I will correct him when he does, because he's still a kitten. He, just do, he doesn't understand boundaries at all. And so I'll correct him, and he'll, he'll give me this glare. I mean, I know 15-year-old girls can glare. I saw that in my daughter. But I didn't know eight-month-old cats can glare. He will, well, well, for instance, yesterday, he was on top of the stove, which is a cl classic parenting situation. I don't want him on the stove. That's the food I'm going to eat, not what he's going to eat. In addition to my own personal desires and hygiene considerations, I know the stove is a hazardous place. In this particular moment, it wasn't any hazard to him but I know it could be hazardous. So I don't want him on the stove because I don't want him to get hurt. He doesn't get that. So I tell him in my firmest, strongest voice, no, get down. Now he knows the way our kitchen is laid out, the stove's here, there's a counter that runs like this, there's another counter that comes out like this. He knows already I'm on the other side of the counter. I mean, he gives me a look. I don't speak cat, but I, I, I understood and interpreted that look. That look was, you cannot get to me, and I have absolutely no intention to obey. I mean, I can see it. So I walked all the way around the counter. I walked over towards the stove, and right as I reached for him, boom, he's gone. Then he gets down on the floor and he goes to the other part of the kitchen and he looks at me again like, you can tell me and you can threaten me and you outweigh me, but I don't intend to listen to you. Mr. Knightley, the reason I, I, I somewhat disagree with the name is he was named because in the early days he was very gentle, very kind. He just wanted to snuggle. He just wanted, and that's how he got to me. He just would come in and he would kind of give me this look like, I know you're the strongest one in the house. I'm going to sit here on your lap because I know this is the safest place. Turned out he was sick and had a fever. <laughs> and so that's not the way he is now, but that's the way he was when he came into the house. So we gave him the, the most gentlemanly name we know, and it should have been named something like Thrasher or... <laughs> He does parkour in our living room. If you're, if, you're, if you're old enough, you don't know what I mean by parkour. The rest of you know what I'm talking about. He, does, he practices parkour. So anyway, he's looking on, he's sitting on the floor. He's looking at me. He's staring at me like, I'm, I am not going to obey. And I kind of walk on back around that way. And he literally jumps up and attacks me. 
How dare you tell me no? And I stood there looking at him, and I think, how many times, I mean, honestly, how many times do I do that to God? It's like I've prayed. I already know when I pray what I want the answer to be. And if the answer is not what I want it to be, and, and I know God's more capable than me, if I didn't think God was more capable than me, why would I pray to him? I would just figure out the solution, and I would get what I want, whatever it is that I'm asking for, I would take care of it. But I know God has a greater capacity than I do, and so I trust him, and so I pray. And then sometimes the answer is no, maybe because God actually has a bigger picture than me, and he knows not only does he not desire for me to do whatever I want or whatever I'm doing, but he also knows that it's hazardous for me. He knows that actually saying, yes, it's okay, fine, go ahead and do this, would be harmful for me, and that harm could spell out to other people who would be hurt by the harm that would happen to me that I would share with everybody else. He just says no. And my tendency is to want to glare at him like, what What do you mean no? You love me. I mean, in my particular case, I mean, I can even throw in some vocational leverage. You not only love me, and I know that, I've known that now for decades, but I teach people every week, sometimes almost daily, how much you love them. Why wouldn't you give me what I want? God doesn't feel obligated to give excuses. It's something we have to adjust to. But I think even the awareness and the understanding that God's more capable, he's larger, he's more powerful, he's, he's more capable, and we can trust him to know sometimes it doesn't have, we don't need the answer we want. But then there's the sweetness of those moments when he says, you know, I want to give you what you want. And it can be a combination of being terrified or overwhelmed, even a sense of uncertainty about what's playing out in front of us. And to hear God say to us, which the words of angels, angels share the same Shekinah glory. They radiate the Shekinah glory, that is the glory that is exclusively God's. And so it's not the glory of a beautiful morning, it's not the glory of a beautiful mountain, it's not the glory of a beautiful ocean, it is a glory that is exclusively God's and angels radiate that, and so it, it is pretty frightening to see them in that moment. But to hear the angels say to Zechariah, to hear the Holy Spirit say to us, do not be afraid, your prayer has been heard. It's not guaranteeing what I want, it's just guaranteeing that I've been heard. And in this particular case, it is the sweetness of grace, because the next statement is, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will name him John, and that name John literally translates Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. Yahweh is and has been gracious. You have the complications, but you have the considerations that God is concerned. We, we aren't alone. He's heard us. He knows. God's concerned intimately and deeply about our lives. He knows what the economy is, and he knows how hard you had a, a difficult time yesterday working out and sorting out your bills. He knows how you're struggling. He knows how difficult it is at work. He knows what the personality is and the character is of the manager or the supervisor that just seems to constantly rag on you and is constantly on your back, and, and, and for any reason, and you might not even know why. 
He knows the hurtful nature of the comments that have been said by a family member or a coworker or a student friend or somebody in the neighborhood or somebody online. He knows. Jesus came. And one of the missions that he came with was to be that high priest we talked about during Christmas who understands our weaknesses, our pains, our sorrow, our woundedness. So that, yes, he can forgive our sins, but in the process of forgiving our sins, heal us of that woundedness. I mean, yes, your prayer has been heard. And in this case, the answer is exactly what Zechariah, exactly what Elizabeth wanted. Your wife will bear a son. And I want you to name him John so that every time his name is called out, people remember Yahweh is gracious. Now, I'm going to include one little segment here in verses 18 through 22 because it's just an interesting moment. The miracle is unfolding. The miracle is happening. The miracle is taking place. But it's what most scholars refer to as a punitive miracle because there are consequences, and faith has consequences. Now, the difficulty, my hesitation is sometimes we tend to make application negatively in our lives when it's not necessarily accurate. It doesn't mean every time we doubt, God punishes us. But it does mean that our faith hurts and strains that relationship. Our lack of faith hurts and strains that relationship. And he may want to correct us. And that's part of the trusting process. Part of the trusting process is understanding the beauty of the grace moment, of the error-changing moment, that, gra- that moment that's going to change everything from this moment forward because of the miraculous love and grace of God. That's absolutely essential to grasp that, but also understand that in the process, sometimes God wants to correct. And so scholars refer to this as a punitive miracle because Zechariah does exactly what I would like to do. I've discovered when it comes to Bible characters, I've not taught much on Zechariah because I don't like Zechariah. Now that I've spent several weeks studying it and preparing it and coming to share it with you, I realize part of the reason I don't like Zechariah is he's too much like me. This is exactly what I would do. If I'm honest, completely honest, if I was in this situation, I would exactly respond in the same way in verse 18. How can I know this? By the way, angel who radiates the glory of God, who scared me to death just a minute ago, I have the confidence now to sit back, stare at you, and look you in the face and say, in case you didn't notice, I'm an old man, and my wife also, isn't he so gracious, along in years. (laughs) Gabriel's response is pretty normal. I am Gabriel. You know, we only have like three names in all the the Bible of angels, and this is one of them. He's one of the primary messengers, primary archangel. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I don't understand all the host of angels and all the ranks and all the levels. But Gabriel's making it pretty obvious to Zechariah, 
he's, he's up there. <laughs> he has the ear. They stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. That's a correction. Zechariah, you prayed for this. You had complications you couldn't resolve. You prayed for it, and now I'm here to tell you that it's been answered. This is God's consideration, God's love for you, and you are going to face consequences because you just wouldn't accept it. You just wouldn't believe it. You just wouldn't trust him. And those consequences in Zachariah's case, this is how I know Zachariah is like me because this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me in verse 20. Now, listen. <laughs> and as if Zachariah has a choice because you're going to become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. I love that. Now, listen. Oh, by the way, you have no choice. For the next nine months, you're not going to be allowed to speak. You're going to communicate everything by sign language, maybe by writing, because you've got to at least tell Elizabeth that the baby boy's name is John. You're going to spend the next nine months thinking about it, contemplating it. Man, that would be tough for me. This is how I know, because that would be like the worst consequence to me. The worst thing anybody ever says to me is don't tell anyone. <laughs> now, let me reassure you, because some of you have told me some things this morning already that nobody else needs to know. Let me reassure you that over the years, I have disciplined that information and the ability to keep that information. And if you shared something sensitive with me this morning, it is not going to be shared with anybody else unless it slips out into a sermon. So guests, <laughs> tell you, sometimes happens on Sunday mornings. Um, if it's any consolation, we can edit the live stream after the fact. So, um, but not live. Here are the most amazing miracles taking place. Zachariah can't tell anybody. There are consequences. Faith makes a difference, which is my challenge. That's why I want you to memorize verse 13 and, and remind yourself all throughout 2024, God has heard our prayers. He, he listens to us. He knows us. He's working in our lives. And even if he's correcting us, it's to do a better work in us and a better future in us so that we can do what we love to do and what we're about to do even as we close out this service. Celebrate the graciousness of God. Elizabeth hears it in verse 23 through 25, and her response is, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. He's forgiven. He has healed. And he has even made all things right. The Lord has done this for me. So when that grace moment happens this year, when that error-defining moment takes place, and it's changing your life, Going forward from this, it'll never be the same because God's intervened. Just simply thank him and realize he did this for you. He did this for me. He did this for us because he loves us. And then when we do get to share it with people, 
Further down in the chapter, the next section talks about Mary's supernatural conception and the birth of the Messiah. But further down in the chapter, you get down to verse 41. Mary takes off. She goes to see Elizabeth as they gather in the room and as they come in. In verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, heard Mary's voice, the baby leaped inside of her. This is a unique moment in history. Both Elizabeth and Mary are filled with the Holy Spirit. Both John, who we will later refer to as the baptizer, and Jesus, who we will later refer to as our Savior, are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they recognize one another in the womb. Elizabeth exclaims in verse 45, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And in verse 46, Mary will write the lyrics to one of the most beautiful songs ever sung in history. Celebrate. It could be real hard right now. Complications can be tough. But God is considering it. And there may be consequences if we respond inappropriately or inaccurately, but that's because he wants to correct us. And in reality, we want to be corrected. He knows what's better. He understands the bigger picture. He understands what's best for us, and he understands what hurts us and what harms us. And if he's correcting us, even that's worth celebrating. But make 2024 a year where we not only see the intervention because of God's grace, but we make a point of always celebrating it.